if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 12. You know, the world has a long history of masks. Archaeologists have discovered them. They're thousands of years old in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And they all basically serve one purpose, to hide your identity, whether you are entertaining on the stage or in some animalistic uh, uh, ritual trying to hide your face from the spirit and demon world as you converse with them. Or in other situations, uh, Greek ancient bacchanalia cults used to wear masks so that they could, in their rituals, throw off all restraint and pursue all kinds of licentious behavior without having to uh, smear them their name or make known their identity. That has taken on its own form in Catholic carnival celebrations in Venice and Brazil, as we well know, the famous mask and the parades that are there, all really driven to hide people so that they could participate in things that they wouldn't normally participate in, so that they could do things without really letting people know who they are. Of course, you don't need a mask to do that. People hide all the time. They hide their true self all the time. They hide their intentions. They hide their heart. They hide their their uh, motives behind certain kinds of outward behavior, certain kinds of pretense, actions, and 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 speech that can all sort of cover up who they really are. All of it designed to impress people with the idea, perhaps, of your virtue or respectability or spirituality or whatever it might be, when in fact, your true self, your true heart, thinks very differently, feels very differently, acts very differently when it has the opportunity and the environment. This whole idea of a mask is really behind the word hypocrite. I mean, the word itself uh, in ancient world meant to act, and it came to be uh, associated with the wearing of mask in the ancient Greek theater. It's the word, of course, that Jesus applies to the Pharisees. They were mask wearers. They were people who hid their true heart. They hid their true self. They hid their true motives. They wore a kind of a mask as they went about their way in Israel. They covered up their true hearts. They were masters of this, masters of social pretense, masters of religious pretense, behaving in a certain way, saying the right words, holding all the socially acceptable positions, There would be very few in Jesus' day who would have ever thought to have questioned these men or challenged them in all of this. But, of course, Jesus was willing to challenge them. And that's what He's been doing as we've been seeing in Matthew 11 and 12. He's been directly, forcibly challenging their pretense, their hypocrisy, their games, their cover-up. He's been unmasking their smug moral superiority, their self-satisfied, arrogant, puffed-up view of themselves, their self-righteousness, 
He's been ripping the mask off of all of that because they would not admit their need. They would not admit the inconsistencies of their life and their position. They would not acknowledge the judgment that they were faced, uh, that they were facing from God. They were obstinate. They were stubborn. They were self-willed. They were defiant against the truth. And all of it, they tried to hide behind a social and religious respectable mask, if you will. But Jesus is having none of it. He is exposing them, revealing who they truly are on the inside by pointing out their inconsistencies on the outside. Well, today we come to another example of that in Matthew 12, verse 33 through 37, which really is a continuation of of conversation that or a debate that started with the Pharisees all the way back to verse 23. You remember he had healed a demoniac man. He'd cast a demon out and they, rather than rejoicing in this good deed, they accused him of doing it by the power of the devil. And he had already blistered them by showing how blind and twisted their excuses were for rejecting him. But he he continues on in verse 33, and that's where we pick up this morning, where he says to them, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good person Out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Here, Jesus is pressing the point with these guys. He's pressing the point about their whole debate, about his casting out a demon, and really their broader debate about him, about his ministry, about his gospel, about what he preached, about all of these things. And he's pushing and he's pressing, particularly here, two important pieces of evidence. He's pushing the issue of works and the issue of words. More specifically, his own works and their own words. And all of this kind of resulting in a call or a challenge for them, really to anyone listening to this whole interchange, to step back and consider the evidence of who he is, the evidence of his gospel, and the evidence of their need. And he begins in verse 33 with one particular piece of evidence, which is his works, the works that really validate his goodness. That's what he means when he he gives this little analogy, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. He's not asking them to make uh, a tree. He's asking them to recognize a tree. He would never ask anyone to make a bad tree or make bad fruit. He's asking them in their mind to recognize or to consider or to make an acknowledgement of something Something that should be as plain as day, some kind of, uh, of uh, acknowledgement or the same kind of acknowledgement that they make really every day. They recognize that if a tree has apples, it's an apple tree. If a tree has oranges, it's an orange tree. They recognize this on an agricultural level, on a common sense level every day. 
But in this case, the tree that they are examining is Jesus. And they're doing their best to ignore the obvious, which is the fact that his life is filled with good works. His life is filled with good works. Everywhere he went, he taught people principles of love. He, he taught them patience and kindness and forgiveness. Everywhere he went, he welcomed the poor and the outcast. Everywhere he went, he healed the sick. He tended to the needy and the hungry. His life was good. His works were good. That's all they saw all the time from him. And so when you have a life that's filled with all of that good fruit, with all of those good deeds, it should be obvious. The only obvious conclusion is that it comes from a good heart, from a good person, from a good inner man. It comes from a godly man. The Pharisees, however, were trying everything they could to deny that over and over again. They looked at his good deeds and they tried to deny them. Or they, in this case, they looked at his good deeds. They recognized that something had happened that was good. A man had had a demon cast out of him. And instead of acknowledging the good deed that was done and drawing the right conclusion, they try to credit it to the power of Satan. And Jesus already says it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. A house divided against itself is not going to stand. Satan is not going to go out and do good deeds over and over and over and over again. And so he, he invites them to examine his fruit, to examine his deeds, to make a conclusion about his life, about his heart, about his tree, if you will. And he does this over and over again throughout his life. He pleads with people. He begs people, examine me. Take a look at my works. Think about what I did, the way I lived. John 5, 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. In John 10, verse 25, he says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. A few verses later, they, for whatever reason, take up their stones. They want to kill Jesus. He answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? For which of my good deeds, Jesus asked, are you going to reject me? For which of my good works are you going to ridicule me and set me aside? John 14, 11, believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he was constantly pleading with people to examine him, to examine his fruit, to draw the what should be the obvious conclusion. You see the good deeds, it ought to point to a good tree. You see the good deeds, it ought to point to a good life. People still refuse to do it, though. They still refuse to examine him. They still refuse to consider him. Even though they have no reason to accuse him, 
There's never been any major movement that would discredit Christ as an evildoer. There's never been any major group that has denied his works. There's never been any credible accusations made against him other than maybe to attribute his good deeds to Satan. Over and over and over again, people have recognized Christ as one who taught peace, who brought mercy, who spoke about hope. They recognized that his deeds were good, that he was a good man. As the, as the old saying goes, he uh, made his claims, obviously, of the deity. And uh, in that sense, he is either the Lord or he is a liar. You can make that conclusion, but if you accept his words and see his life, you've got to recognize this was a good man. This was a good man. His fruit was good. And he pleads with you to examine it. But he also warns those who see his good works and still refuse. John fifteen twenty four. If I had not done among you the deeds that no one else did, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. This was the Pharisees. This was the religious establishment. This was the the people who lived in their hypocrisy in that day. They hated Christ. They hated Him without a cause. They hated him in spite of all of his good fruit. They hated him in spite of all of his good deeds. Just like people today who hate Christ, who reject Christ, in spite of the fact they have no accusation against Christ, in spite of the fact that he's done nothing but demonstrate goodness, in spite of the fact that he has all of these good fruits, they've determined in their obstinate hearts they're going to hate Christ. They're going to hate Christ without a cause, without a reason. Refusing to acknowledge him refusing to see his good works. Well, Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand. He wants everyone to understand that hatred of him may come, but it's not an indictment against him. It's really an indictment against you. It really is saying more about you. It's exposing you. It's unmasking you. It's showing who you really are. If you can see all of those good works and yet not accept him for who he is, the good and kind and gracious Savior that He is. It exposes you. Which takes us to the second piece of evidence that He puts before them in verse 34 and 35, which is the words of these men. Their words are demonstrating what's in their heart. The evidence from His life was goodness. The evidence from their life was quite different. In fact, the evidence pointed in a very different direction. Jesus begins by calling him a brood of vipers. We remember that description if you were with us when we saw John the Baptist ministry back in Matthew chapter 3. He himself called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And you may remember in that discussion, we talked about this, how unique vipers were. The word viper comes from the word vivis and pare, viper meaning uh, that uh, which gives birth to the living 
because they're the only snake uh, in the world that gives live birth. Most snakes lay eggs and uh, the children are hatched later. But in the case of vipers, their children are hatched within them and are, are, are birthed alive. But as many ancient writers had pointed out, Plutarch and Pliny the Elder and others, sometimes in the process of that, the, uh, the children would be in the womb, maybe for a couple of days growing so large, they would actually chew their way out of their mother's womb. They would, they would kill their mother. And so they, they became known as an especially evil snake, particularly because of the way that they attacked their mothers, the way that they killed their mothers. And so for Jesus to call them not just a viper, but he calls them the children, the offspring, a brood of vipers. You're this particularly kind of, of evil and wicked person. That's incredibly harsh language, but it wasn't harsh for the sake of being harsh. It wasn't hostile for the sake of being hostile. That wasn't the nature of Jesus. These were sharp words that were an attempt to penetrate the dry and hardened soil of their conscience because their heart had grown so cold to the truth. They were living in such a dangerous place of insincerity, false security, and hypocrisy. He was doing everything he can to penetrate below that superficial surface. And so he's doing what he can to rattle and to shake them because he wants them to hear this penetrating question in verse 34. How can you speak good when you are evil? How can you speak good when you are evil, he says. When you see evil in your life, How can you believe that you are a source of goodness and truth? This is, of course, the challenge that he gives to every unbeliever to recognize that they themselves are not the source of goodness and truth, to recognize that their heart is not the place of answers, to recognize that their inner person, no matter how confident they might be in themselves, does not have eternal answers. How can you speak good when you are evil? And he gives the evidence for the evil in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The word abundance there, parasuma, it literally means to have leftovers, to mean to have more than is necessary. It's the word that's used whenever Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes and they had uh, more left over. They had baskets full of, of food when it was all said and done. So he's talking about here the, the, the leftovers, the more than necessary, or we might say the overflow of your heart. All that is filling your heart, all that is overflowing from your heart, it all eventually spills out, he's saying. It's spilling out and it's overflowing and it's saying an enormous amount about you. The good person, he says in verse 35, out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. He's using the word treasure, the word thesaurus there from which we get thesaurus, not to talk about 
precious or rich things, but just simply the storehouse, the storehouse of what's in your heart, that which you're storing up in your heart eventually overflows. And when it overflows, you see what is exactly in your heart, what the kind of loves and what kind of attitudes and what kind of thoughts are really there. Jesus, of course, already said this back in Matthew 5, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander, all those things come from the heart. You might think they come from your environment. You might think it might be some person, this or that, who led you into this kind of a sin. You might think that it's all that outward stuff, but Jesus says, no, it's coming from within you. The source is within you. And the clearest indicator of what's down in there, he says, the clearest indicator of that heart is your speech, your words. Because it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. It's out of everything spilling out of your heart that it takes its manifestation in words. You might monitor your words. You might be careful with your words from time to time. You might put on certain words at certain times in certain environments to impress certain people. But all of it eventually is going to manifest itself. A thorn bush may have its blossoms in a season, but it's never going to produce luscious fruit. A poisonous plant may have a certain beauty to it during certain times, but it's still going to be deadly. You might have the ability to put on kind words and cordial words. You might be able to express thankfulness. You might be able to express kindness here and there. But what Jesus is saying is given time, given time and given circumstances, the evidence of what's in your heart will come out through your words. By the way, when he uses the word heart, he's not using it the way that we normally use it, the sense of sort of our emotional inner person. The word heart in the Scripture really refers to the entire inner self, not just the emotions, but the thinking, the reason, everything within you. Proverbs, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. So the entire inner person... That entire inner self, your inner thinking, this is what's being revealed. The fruit bearing that comes from your speech reveals a heart and a mind that is filled with certain things. And those things are coming out in your words. It might be speech that's full of anger, full of bitterness, full of pride, strife, deception, boasting, filthiness, abuse. Or you might have a tongue that's filled with gentleness, forgiveness, sincerity, truth, wisdom, mercy. All those things you see in your own life and you can figure out what's on the inside, Jesus is saying. And the evidence for these Pharisees should have been obvious. 
Their heart was no source of eternal truth. Their heart, being evil, could not speak good. James, by the way, picks up the same theme. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me over at James chapter 3. James, the Lord's brother, may have been here listening to one of these teaching sessions from Christ. And in James chapter 3, he picks up this issue of the tongue. And he says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So he says, you, you can identify a perfect man, a mature man, a godly man, a good man by examining his speech, by examining what comes out of his mouth. He draws this correlation, though, the same way that Jesus does between your speech and your life. If you can master your speech, he says, it's a good indication that you can master your life. But if you can't discipline your mouth, it's a good indication that you can't discipline your life. If you can't tame your tongue, you don't have much hope of taming your life. If you can't make your tongue righteous, then you don't have much hope of living a righteous life. In fact, it goes on down in verse 8 to to say that a tongue, the tongue, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And in verse 10, he, he points out that out of the mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way, he says. Your mouth, in other words, as is a, is a kind of a, of a Jekyll and Hyde. It has this split personality. You remember the story that uh, Dr. Jekyll wanted to have some sort of outlet where he could pursue all of his degrading desires without being noticed. And so he developed this potion, this formula that was supposed to transform him to allow him to do that. And then as he went on in his way, eventually the potion stopped working and he kept changing uncontrollably back and forth from Jekyll to Hyde, from Jekyll to Hyde. Well, James says your tongue is like that. It's restless. It's always going back and forth. It's always switching from what's respectable to what's not respectable, from blessing to cursing, from kindness to cruelty. It's always drifting back to slander, back to gossip, back to bitterness, back to sensuality, back to anger, back to deceit. And he tells you, just like Jesus tells you, the evidence is all there. Your tongue is speaking, and it's speaking out of what is overflowing in your heart. You can put a mask on it temporarily, but it's all eventually going to come out. And what it's showing is that down in your heart is jealousy and greed and discontentment and pride and lack of love and deceit and all manner of corruption. When no one's looking and when you think you won't be noticed, it comes out. James goes on in verse 11, does a spring pour forth the same from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Of course not. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Of course not. Can a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. We know these things. These are so obvious to us on an agricultural level. But people fail to make what is the obvious observation on a spiritual level. And James is making the same point that Jesus made. Words that come out of your mouth reveal what is on the inside. They reveal your moral makeup. They reveal your spiritual makeup. They reveal the corruption of your heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It tells you what's on the inside. 
And Jesus is calling for some evaluation. He's calling on, on you for some evaluation. To take a close look. What are your words saying about you? Is it a destructive force? As James says, a, a fiery force set on fire by the flames of hell. Is it destructive to the people around you? Destructive to families? Destructive to homes? Destructive to communities? Or is it speech that's transformed by the power of God? As James says, is it filled with wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, truthful, sincere? If your heart is full of wisdom from above, it produces those kinds of fruit. If your heart is fueled by the fires of hell, predictably it's going to be filled with disorder and bickering and cursing, anger and jealousy. So James is just borrowing the same truth that Jesus is teaching here. Your mouth ought to be evaluated. Your speech ought to be evaluated because it eventually produces verbally what is in your heart. It eventually produces verbally what's in your heart. And so the question becomes, if that's what's in your heart, can your heart be trusted? If that's what's in your heart, is your heart a source of truth? Is it the one that's going to give you the answers of life? Is it the one that's going to give you eternal answers, ultimate answers? If it's spewing forth that kind of venom and that kind of hatred, is that ultimately what you want to be the guiding source and light of your life? Jesus is begging you. He's saying, look at my fruit. Look at the goodness of my life. Draw the conclusion. Examine a tree according to its fruit. I have good works. I have good deeds. I have good words. Recognize the goodness of my life and put your trust in my life, he's saying. Completely unmasking these guys. You might cast your vote against Christ with all of His good works. But you're failing to notice what you're saying through your own words. What you're revealing through your own words. You are self-deceived. Which leads really to Jesus' final point, a warning. A warning where He's trying to communicate the importance of these words of importance of your speech in verse 36 i tell you on the day of judgment people will give an account for every careless word they speak for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned your words are such a clear indication of your spiritual character god will be able to build a case against you on the day of judgment it's not ultimately what determines your spiritual destiny, but, but it is sufficient. It reveals enough. It reveals what's in your heart. 
You'll know the inner condition of your heart. God will know the inner condition of your heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So all the careless words, he says, all the seemingly obscure words, all the idle words are going to be the source of evidence. The words that you speak and so quickly forget, the words that you speak and think that no one else hears, you might assume that because you say them to your friend in secret, no one will ever know them. When you curse people, they'll never know. When you criticize people, they'll never know. When you mock people, they'll never know. When you demean them, when you offend them, And you comfort yourself that they never hear your word, so you never have to worry. And Jesus is saying, that's not the case. It still reveals what's in your heart. And God is going to remember all those idle words, all those careless words, all of those seemingly obscure words are not going to be dismissed. If you won't recognize what they're saying about you, the sad reality is, God is going to recognize what they're saying about you. If you're going to continue to put your trust in your own heart, even though it is evident uh, what kind of a heart it is, you're going to face a stark reality, Jesus is saying. Because on that day, your words are going to condemn. Or your words are going to vindicate. They're going to indicate that God has worked in your heart. That God has taken the sour and bitter and corrupt heart and given you a new heart. That's what He promises to do for those who renounce the trust in themselves and place their trust in Christ. For those who recognize the true nature of their heart and recognize that their heart cannot be the source of truth. Their life cannot be the source of right and wrong. When they recognize that they don't have the answers for life, for eternity, when they examine the fruit of Christ, when they see His good deeds, when they hear His good words, when they confess their sin, when they come in repentance and faith in Christ, He gives you a new heart. And that new heart comes with wisdom from above. It comes with wisdom from above. Peace, gentleness, kindness, renewal. He makes you a new creature. He gives you new conversations. He gives you new attitudes. The whole word repentance is the word metanoia. It literally means a transformation of your mind, a transformation of your thinking, transformation of your attitudes. He changes your heart, which changes your words, changes your fruit, changes your testimony, transforms you completely so that on the day of judgment, your speech It actually justifies you. It actually vindicates that God has done that work in your heart. Jesus is unmasking you. Whether you'll resist it or not, I don't know. Jesus is calling you to examine His good life. Whether you'll stand and try to accuse Him of something other, I don't know. 
But the evidence is before you. The calling is before you. And Jesus is asking you to repent. And place your trust in him. Father, we're grateful for this message as we are with every message from Christ. It is true. It is right. It is loving. And it is good. Like everything that our Savior does, these words, they bring hope. They bring peace. They offer forgiveness. They offer life. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to embrace that. We're so grateful. Those of us who you've touched at an early age, later in life, whenever it was, when we realized that our pathway and our heart was leading us more and more into the misery of our sin, we cried out to you. We renounced our heart and ourself. And we turn to the only source of good, our Savior. I pray today for those who are here who need to do that. Lord, would you show them your power and mercy? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.